Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. I'm Lucas Perry. Today's episode is with Bart Selman and explores his views on possible negative and positive futures with AI, the importance of AI alignment and safety research in computer science, facets of national and international AI governance, lethal autonomous weapons, AI alignment and safety at the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence, and a little bit on AI consciousness. For those not familiar with BART, BART Selman is a professor of computer science at Cornell University and previously worked at AT AT&T Bell Laboratories. He is a co-founder of the Center for Human Compatible AI and is currently the president of the Association for the Advancement of Artificial Intelligence. He is the author of over 90 publications and has a special focus on computational and representational issues. Professor Selman has worked on tractable inference, knowledge representation, stochastic search methods, theory approximation, knowledge compilation, planning, default reasoning, and the connections between computer science and statistical physics. And so, without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Bart Selman. So to start things off here, I'm curious if you can share with us an example of a or a few futures that you're really excited about and an example of a or a few futures that you're quite nervous about or which you fear most. So just let me start with an example of of a future in the context of AI that I'm excited about is the new capabilities that, that AI brings it has the potential to make a life for everyone much easier and, and and much more much more pleasant. I see AI as as complementing our cognitive capabilities. So I can envision you know household robots or smart robots that that assist people uh, living in their houses, living uh, independently longer, including doing kinds of work that that are sort of monotonous and 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 not that exciting for for humans to do. So AI has the has the potential to complement our capabilities and to hugely assist us in many ways including in areas you might not have thought of, like, for example, policy making and, and governance. So AI systems are, are, are very good at, at thinking in high-dimensional terms, trade-off between many different factors. For humans, it, it's hard to actually think in a multidimensional trade-off. We tend to boil things down to one or two central points and argue about a trade-off in, in one or two dimensions. Most policy decisions involve you know, 10, 20 different criteria that may conflict or, or be somewhat contradictory. And exploring that space, AI can, can assist us in finding better policy solutions and better governance. So I think AI has this, this tremendous potential to improve life for all of us, provided that, that we learn to share these, these capabilities, that we have policies in place and, and, and mechanisms in place to make this a positive experience for humans. And if I had to draw a, a parallel, you know, human labor, physical labor's machines have, have, have freed us from heavy-duty physical labor. AI systems can help us with a sort of monotonous cognitive labor or you know, as, as I mentioned, household robots and, and other tools that will make our life much better. 
So that's for the the positive side. Should I uh, shall I continue with a negative? <laughs> so I, before we get into the negative, I'm curious if you could explain a little bit more specifically what the these possible positive futures look like on different timescales. So you explained, you know, AI assisting with cognitive capabilities, with monotonous jobs. And so, you know, over the coming decades, it will begin to occupy some of these roles increasingly. But there's also the medium term, the long term and the deep future in which, you know, the positive fruits of AI may come to bear. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's an excellent point. I think one thing that, that in any transition and, and as I say, so, so, you know, these medium cognitive capabilities that will help us, you know, uh, live better lives uh, will also disrupt, you know, the labor force and, and, the, and the workforce. And this is a, a process that I can see play out over the next five, 10, maybe 15 years, uh, a significant change in, in workforce. And, and I am somewhat concerned about how that will be managed because basically I feel we are moving to a future where people would have more free time, would have more time to be creative, to travel and to, to, to live independently. But of course, everybody needs to have the resources to do that. So there is an important governance issue of making sure that in this transition to a world with more leisure time, that we find ways of, of having everybody benefit from, from these new new future. And this is really, I think, the 5, 10, 15 years process that, that we're faced now. And, and so it's very important that that is done right. Further out in the future, it's, it's, it's a little, you know, my, my own view of AI is that, that machines will excel at, at certain specific tasks, as we, we've seen very much with, you know, AlphaGo, AlphaZero. So, you know, very good at, at specific tasks. And those systems will come in first, self-driving cars, specialized robots for assisting humans. So we'll first get these, these specialized capabilities. Those are not yet general AI capabilities. That's not AGI. So the AGI future, I think, is more 20, 25 years away. So we first have to find ways of, of dealing with, of, of incorporating these specialized capabilities, which are going to be exciting as a scientist. Yeah, why well, I already see AI transforming the way we approach science and do scientific discovery and really complementing our ways. I hope people get excited in the areas of creativity, for example. Computers or AI system bringing a new dimension to these type of human activities that, that will actually be exciting for people to be part of. And that's, that's an aspect that we're starting to see emerge, but people are not fully aware of yet. So we have AI increasingly moving its way into specialized kind of narrow domains. And as it begins to proliferate into more and more of these areas, it's displacing all of the traditional human solutions for these areas, which basically all just includes human labor. So there's an increase in human leisure time. And then what really caught my attention was you, you said AGI maybe 20, 25 years away. Is that your sense of the timeline where you, you start to see real generality or? Yeah, that, that's so, so we, yes. So, so that's a reasonable, in my mind, a reasonable sense of the timeline. But we cannot be absolutely, we cannot be absolutely certain about that. And it's sort of, you know, for AI researchers, it is a very interesting time. The, the hardest thing at this point in the history of AI is to predict what AI can and cannot do. I, I've, I've learned as a professor never to 
to say that deep learning can't do something because every time it surprises me and it can do it uh, a few years later. So, so we we have a certain sense that oh, the, the the field is moving so fast that everything can be done. On the other hand, in some of my research, I look at some of these advances, and and if I, I can give you a specific example, so we, my own research is is partly in in planning, which is a process of of you know how humans plan out activities. They have certain goals, and then they plan what steps should I take to achieve those goals, and and that can be very long sequences of actions to achieve complicated goals. So we we worked on sort of a puzzle style domain, which, which is called Sokoban, and and most most people will not be familiar with it, but but it's it's a kind of a game where it's modeled after workers in a warehouse that have to move around boxes, and and so they, it's a little grid world, and you you push around the boxes to get them from certain initial state to goal states somewhere else on the grid. And there are walls and there are corners and all kinds of things you have to avoid. And what's amazing about the planning task is for traditional planning, this was really a very challenging domain. So we picked it because traditional planners could do maybe 100 steps, 100 pushes, as we call them. But that was about it. There were puzzles available uh, on the web that required 1,500 to 2,000 steps. So it was beyond, way beyond any automated program. And AI researchers had worked on the problem for, for decades. So we, we, of course, used reinforcement learning RL with, with, with some clever curriculum training, some clever forms of training. And suddenly we could solve these these 2,000 steps Sokoban puzzles. So, so we were very, we're still very excited about that capability. And then we started looking, you know, what did the deep net actually know about the problem? And our biggest surprise there was that although the system had learned very subtle things that humans that are beyond human capabilities, it also was totally ignorant about other things that were trivial for humans. So, so like in, in the Sokoban puzzle, you don't want to push your, your box in a corner because once it's in a corner and you can't get it out of a corner, this is something that a human player discovers in the first, you know, I would say first minute of, of, of pushing some boxes around. We realized, I guess, the, the, the deep learning routine network never conceptualized the notion of a corner. So it would only learn about corners if it had seen something being pushed in a particular corner. And if it had never seen that corner being used or, or encountered, it would not realize it shouldn't push the box in there. So we had this sort of, we realized that this, this deep net had a capability that, that is definitely superhuman in, in terms of being able to solve these, these puzzles, but also holes in its knowledge of the world that were very surprising to us. And that's, I think, part of what, what makes AI at this time very difficult to predict. You know, will, will these holes be filled in? Will we develop AI systems that also get these obvious things right? Or, or will AI be at this amazing level of performance, but do things in ways that are that are to us like quite odd. And so so I think there are there are hard challenges that that we don't quite know how to fill in. But because of the speed with which things are developing, it's very hard to predict whether they will be solved in the next, you know, two years or in the next, you know, we'll take another 20 years. But I do want to stress there are surprising things about the I call it the ignorance of, of, the, of the learned models that surprises humans. Yeah. Right. There are ways in which models fail to integrate really rudimentary parts of the world into their understanding that lead to failure modes that even children don't encounter. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and it's this, it's, so, so the problem when, when we as humans interact with AI systems or, or think about AI systems, we anthropomorphize. So we think that they do things similar to the way do it. we do things because that's sort of how we look at complex systems. Even animals are anthropomorphized. So, so we, we think that things have to be done uh, way similar to our own thinking, but we're discovering that, that they can do things very differently and leave out pieces of knowledge that are sort of trivial to us. I have discussions with my students and I point that out and, and they're always sort of even skeptical of my claim. <laughs> they say, well, it, it should know that somewhere. And we actually do experiments and say, no, okay, if, if it never seen the box go in that corner, it will just put it in the corner next time. So they actually have to see it to believe it and because it sounds that, that how can you be the world's best Sokoban solver and, and not, not know what a human knows in the first minute. But that's, that's the surprise. And that also makes the field exciting. But that makes the challenges of superintelligence and general intelligence and, and the impacts of an AI safety particularly challenging topics. Right. So, so predicting an actual timeline seems very difficult. But if we don't go extinct, then do you see the creation of AGI and superintelligence as inevitable? I, I do believe so. Yes, yes, I do believe so. I, I, I think, you know, the, the path I see is we will develop these specialized uh, capabilities, but in more and more areas, in almost all areas. And, and then, you know, they start merging together and in systems that, that do two or three or four and then a thousand specialized tasks. And so generality will emerge almost inevitably. My only hesitation is, you know, what could go wrong uh, or, or why might it not happen if there is some aspect of cognition that, that is really beyond our capabilities of modeling. But I think that is unlikely. I think one of the, you know, one of the surprises in the deep, deep net world and the neural network uh, world is that, you know, before the deep learning revolution, if you, if you can call it that, before it happened, uh, a lot of people looked at, at artificial neural networks as being too simplistic compared to real neurons. So, so there was this sense that, yeah, these little artificial neural networks are, are, are nice models, but they're way too simplistic to, to capture what goes on in, in the human brain. The big surprise was is that apparently <laughs> that, that level of simplification is, is okay, that you can get the functionality of a much more complex real neural network, you get that level of performance and complexity using much simpler units. So there are, that sort of convinced me that yes, the digital approximations we make and simplifications we make, as long as we connect things in, in sufficiently complex networks, we get properties emerge that match our human brain capabilities. So that makes me think at some point we will reach AGI. It's a little hard to say exactly when. And, and I think it may not matter that much exactly when. We'll have challenges in terms of AI safety and value alignment that are already occurring today before we have AGI. So we have to deal with, with challenges right from the start. We don't have to wait for AGI. So in this future where we've realized AGI, do you see superintelligence as coming weeks, months, or years after the invention of AGI? And then what is, what is beautiful about these futures to you in which we have realized AGI and superintelligence? Yeah, so what's exciting about these possible, I mean, there are certain risks. The, the superintelligence would go against humans. I, I 
don't think that that is inevitable. I, I think these systems, they will do things, they will show us aspects of intelligence that to us uh, will look surprising, but will also be uh, be exciting. So some of my other work, we look at mathematical theory improving, and we look at AI systems for proving new or open conjectures in mathematics. The systems clearly do a very different kind of mathematics than, than humans do, or very different kinds of proofs. But it's sort of exciting to see a system that can check a, a, a billion-step proof in a few seconds and, and generate a billion-step proof in, in an hour. And realizing that we can prove something to be true mathematically, so find the mathematical truths that is beyond the human brain. But, you know, since we, we've designed the program and we know how it works and, and we, we use the technology, it's actually a, a fun way to complement our own mathematical thinking. So that's what I see as the positive sense in which superintelligence will actually be of interest uh, to humans to, to have around as, as a complement to us, assuming they will not uh, turn on us. But, but I think that's manageable. Yeah. So how long do you see superintelligence arising after the invention of AGI, even though it's all kind of vague and fuzzy? Like what's what? Uh, yeah, yeah. How long? So, so I, I think when I think of superintelligence, I think of it more as, as superintelligence in certain domains. So I, I assume you are referring to superintelligence as, as a superseding AGI. What, what I mean is like vastly more intelligent than the sum of humanity. I think that's a super interesting question, and I've, I've discussed that. I can see capabilities that are vastly more intelligent in areas like mathematical discovery, scientific discovery, thinking about problems with multiple conflicting criteria that have to be weighted against each other. So in a particular task, I can, I can see superintelligence you know, being vastly more powerful than, than our own intelligence. On the other hand, there is also a question, you know, in what sense superintelligence would manifest itself? If I had to draw an analogy, is is if you meet somebody who is way smarter than you are, and, and everybody now and then meets such a person, I've met a few in my life, these people will impress you about certain things and, and, and give you insight that are, oh, this is exciting. But when you go to have dinner with them and have a good meal, they're just like regular people. So, so superintelligence doesn't necessarily manifest itself in, in all aspects. It will, be, it, it will be surprising in certain kinds of areas and tasks and insights, but it will not, I, I do not believe it will come out. I, I guess I've had drawn an analogy, like you can't, if you go for dinner with, uh, it sounds bad for dogs, but if you go for dinner with a dog, I guess, yeah, you will fully dominate uh, all the conversations and, and, and be sort of super intelligent compared to the, to the dog. I'm not sure, it's, it's not clear to me that, that there is an, an entity that will dominate our intelligence in all aspects. So there will be lots of activities, lots of conversations, lots of things we can have with a super intelligent being that are, are quite understandable and quite accessible to us. So the analogy that there will be an, an entity that dominates our intelligence uniformly, that I'm not convinced exists. You know, that goes back to the question what human intelligence is. And human intelligence is, is actually quite general. So there's an interesting question, what, what is meant by superintelligence? And how, would it, how would we recognize it? How would it manifest itself? 
When I think of superintelligence, I think of like a general intelligence that is more intelligent than the sum of humanity. And so part of that generality is its capability to run an emulation of maybe 10,000 human minds within its own general intelligence. And so the human mind becomes a subset of the intelligence of the superintelligence. So in that way, it seems like it would dominate human intelligence in all domains. Yeah, what, what I'm trying to say is I can see that. And, and that's sort of, you know, if you would, you know, play a game of chess with such a super intelligence, they would, they would beat you if they would, if you would do... It would not be fun if they if you would do some math with you the, the, the mathematics and, and show you some some you know, proofs of from Maslow's theorem. It, it would be trivial for the superintelligence. So I, I can see a lot of specific tasks and domains where the superintelligence would indeed run circles around you and, and around any human. But how would it manifest it? So, so so yeah, on these individual questions. But you have to have the right questions and this is i guess what, what i struggle with a little bit you have to have the right questions to to show the superintelligence so so like for example the question what should we do about income inequality you know so it's like a practical problem in the united states would a superintelligence necessarily have something superintelligent to say about that and and that's not that clear to me because there, there might actually you know, that that you know, it's a tough problem, and and it it, it but but it may just be as tough for the for the superintelligence as it is for 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 any human. So a superintelligent politician, would that superintelligent politician have solutions to all our problems? Suddenly, would it be win every debate? I, I think interestingly, the answer is probably no. There there are certain so superintelligence manifests itself on on tasks that require high level of intelligence, like problem-solving tasks, mathematical domains, scientific domains, games, but daily life and governance, it's a little less clear to me. So in that sense, and, and that's what I mean by, you know, you're going to have dinner with a superintelligence, would you be just sitting there? I can't say anything useful about in income inequality because the superintelligence will say much more better things about it. I'm not so sure. Maybe you've both had a wine or two and you, you, you know, ask the superintelligence, you know, why, why is there something rather than nothing? Or like, what is the nature of moral value? And they're just like... What's the purpose of life? I, I'm not sure the superintelligence is going to get me a better answer to that. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. so, I mean, this is where philosophy and, and ethics and meta-ethics, you know, merges with computer science, right? Because it seems like you're talking about there are domains in which AI will become super intelligent. Many of these domains, the ones that you listed sounded very quantitative. Ones which involve kind of the scientific method and empiricism. Not that these things are necessarily disconnected from ethics and philosophy. But, you know, if you're just working with numbers with a given objective, then there's no philosophy that really needs to be done if the, if the objective is given. But if you ask about how do we deal with income inequality, then the objective is not given. And so you do philosophy about, you know, what is the nature of right and wrong? What is good? Uh, what is valuable? What is the nature of identity? Uh, and all these kinds of things and how they, they relate to building a good world. So I'm curious, do you think that there are, are true or false answers to moral questions? Yeah, I think they're, 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 they're clearly wrong answers. So, so, so I think moral issues, I, I think that, that's a spectrum to me. And that we can probably, as humans, agree on, on certain basic moral values. It's, it's also very human kind of you know, 
topic. So I think we, we can agree on basic moral values, but I think the hard part is we, we also see among people and among different cultures incredible different views of, of moral values. So um, saying which one is right and which one is wrong may actually be much harder uh, than we would like it to be. So this comes back to the, the value alignment problem, and, and, and I like these in the discussions about it. It's a very, very good research field and, and a very important research field. But the question always is, whose values? And we now realize that even, you know, even within a country, people have very different values that are actually hard to understand between different groups of people. So there is a challenge there. It might be uniquely human. Of, of, you know, are there universal? So, so it feels like there should be universal truths in morality. Things about equality, for example. But I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant because, because I'm surprised about how much disagreement I see about what I would think are universal truths that somehow are not universal truths for all people. So, so that's, that's another complication. And again, if you tie that back to superintelligence, so a superintelligence is going to have some position on it. But it is going to be yes or no. It may not agree with everybody. And there's no superintelligent position on it in my mind. So that's, that's a whole area of AI and, and value alignment that is very challenging. Right. So it, so it sounds like you think that you have some intuition that there are universal moral truths, but it's conflicting to you why there is so much disagreement across different persons. So I guess I'm curious about two things. The first is one thing that you're excited about for the future and about positive outcomes from AGI. Is it worlds in which AGI and superintelligence can help assist with moral and philosophical issues like around how to resolve income inequality and like truth around uh, moral questions? And then the second part of the question is, uh, do you think that superintelligence is created by other species across the universe? Do you think that they would naturally converge on certain ethics, whether those ethics be uh, universal truths or whether they be relative game theoretic expressions of how intelligence can propagate in the universe? Yeah, so, so yeah, two very good uh, questions. So as, as the first one, I am quite excited about the idea that a superhuman level of intelligence uh, or, or an extreme level of intelligence will help us better understand moral judgments and decisions and issues of ethics. I, I almost feel that, that humans are, are a little, little stuck in, in, this, in this debate. And a lot has to do, I think, with an inability to explain clearly to each other why certain values matter and, and other values should be viewed differently. It's, it's often even a, a matter of, you know, can we, can we explain to each other what are good moral judgments and, and, and good, good moral positions? So I have some hope that, that AI systems, a smart AI system would be better at actually sorting out some of these questions and then convincing everybody, because in the end, you know, we, we have to agree on these things. And perhaps these systems will help us find more common ground. So that's, that's a hope I have for, for AI systems that truly understand our world and are truly capable of understanding. Because part of, uh, of a super smart AI would be understanding many different positions and, and maybe something that limits humans in getting agreements on ethical questions is that we actually have trouble 
understanding the perspective of another person that has a conflicting position. So superintelligent might be one way of modeling everybody's mind and then being able to, to bring a, a consensus about. I have an optimistic view of, of there may be some real possibilities there for, for superintelligence. Your second question of whether some alien form of superintelligence would, would come to the same uh, basic ethical values as we may come to, th that's possible. I think it's very hard to... Yeah. yeah, sorry, whether those are ultimate truths as in facts or whether they're just relative game theoretic expressions of uh, how agents compete and cooperate in a universe of kind of limited resources. Yes, yes. So... From a human perspective, you would hope there are some, some universal shared ethical perspective or an ethical, ethical view of the world. I'm really on the fence. I guess I could also see that, that in the end, you know, very different forms of life that, that we would even hardly recognize would, would basically interact with us via you know, sort of a, a game-theoretic competition mode and, and that they cannot, and because they're so different from us, that, that, they, that we would have trouble finding shared values. So I, you know, I, I see possibilities for, 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 both, um, for, for both outcomes. If other life forms you know, share some commonality with our life form, I I'm hopeful for, for a common ground. But, but that seems like a big assumption because the common life form may be so totally different that they cannot connect at, at a more uh, fundamental level. So taking these short and long-term perspectives, what is really compelling and exciting for you about good futures from AI? Is it the short to medium-term benefits? Are you excited and compelled by the longer-term outcomes, the, you know, the possibility of superintelligence allowing us to spread for millions or billions of years into the, the cosmos? What's really compelling to you about this picture of what AI can offer? Yeah, I'm optimistic about the opportunity, both short term and longer term. I, I think it's fairly clear that, that humanity is actually struggling with an incredible range of problems right now, sustainability, global warming, political conflicts. It, it, it's actually, you know, you, you could be quite, if you, you could be quite pessimistic almost about, about the human future. I, I'm not, but there, these are real challenges, and and so I'm I'm hopeful that actually AI will will help humanity in in finding a better path forward. You know, as, as I mentioned briefly, even in terms of policy and governance, AI systems may actually really help us there. So far, you know, so far this has never been done. AI systems haven't been sufficiently sophisticated for that, but in the next you know, five to 10 years, I could see systems starting to help uh, human governance. So that's the, the, the short term. I, I actually think AI can have a significant positive impact in resolving some of our, our biggest challenges. In a longer term, it's harder to anticipate you know, what the world will look like, but of course, spreading out as, as a superintelligence and, and living on in some sense, in, you know, spreading out across the universe and, and over many different timescales, having AI continue the human adventure is, is actually sort of interesting. You know, we wouldn't be confined to our, our little planet. We, we, we would go everywhere. So that could actually be an exciting future that, that might happen. It's, it's harder to imagine exactly what it is, but it could be quite an, a human achievement. In the end, you know, 
whatever happens to AI, it, it is, of course, a human invention. So I, I think, you know, science and, and technology are human inventions, and, and that's almost what we can be most proud of in some ways, of, of things that we actually did figure out uh, how to do well, aside from creating a lot of other problems on the planet. So we could be proud of that. Is there anything else here in terms of the economic, political, and social situations of positive futures from AI that you'd, you'd like to touch on before we move on to the negative outcomes? Yeah, so I, I guess it, 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 the main thing I, I would, I, I'm hoping that, that, that the general public and, and politicians will become more aware and will be better educated about the, the positive aspects of AI and the positive potential it has. You know, the range of opportunities to transform education, to transform healthcare, to deal with sustainability questions, to deal with global warming, scientific discovery. The opportunities are, are incredible. And so what I would hope is that those aspects of AI will receive more attention in, in the broader public and with politicians and with journalists. It's so easy to, to go after sort of the negative aspects that those negative aspects you know, and, and the risk ha have received uh, disproportional attention from the positive aspects. So, so that's the, my, my hope and as part of the uh, AAAI organization, professional organization for, for artificial intelligence, Part of our mission is to inform Washington the politicians of, of these positive opportunities because that's, that would be, uh, we shouldn't miss out on those. And, and that's an important mission for us to, to, to make that clear, that there's something to be missed out on if we don't take these opportunities. Yeah, right. There's, there's the sense that all of our problems are basically subject to intelligence. And so as we begin to solve intelligence and what it means to be wise and, and knowing, you know, there's nothing in the laws of physics that are preventing us from solving any problem that is in principle solvable within the laws of physics. It's like intelligence is the key to anything that is literally possible to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and underlying that is sort of rational thought, our, our abilities to analyze things, to predict the future, to to understand complex systems and, and the rationality underlies that scientific thought process and and humans have excelled at that and an ai can boost that further so that's an opportunity we have to grab and, and i hope we people recognize that more so do you i guess two questions here then do you think existential risk from ai is a legitimate threat I think it's something that that we should be aware of that it could develop as a threat. Yeah. So the the time scale is is a little unclear to me how near that that existential threat is, but it's something that we should be aware of that there is a, a risk of of sort of runaway intelligence systems not properly controlled. Now I think that the problems will emerge much more concretely and earlier, like for example, cybersecurity and, and, and AI systems that, that break into computer networks that, that are hard to deal with. So, so there will be very practical threats to us that will, will take most of our attention. But the overall existential threat, I think, is, is indeed also there. So do, do you think that the AI alignment problem is a legitimate real problem? And how would you characterize it? assuming you think it's a problem? So I, I, I do think it, it's a problem. I, I think it, 
what I like about the term, it, it, it sort of makes it makes it crisp that if, if we can, you know, if we if we train a system for a particular objective, then it will learn how to be good at that objective. But in learning how to do that, it may uh, it, it may violate you know basic human principle, basic human values. So I think as a general paradigm statement that we we should think of what happens to systems that we train to optimize a certain objective that they they need to achieve that in a way that aligns with with human values i, I think is a very fundamental research question and a very fundamental very valid question so in that sense i'm a big supporter of the research community taking the value alignment problem very serious as as i said before there, there are some hesitation about you know how to approach the problem I think sometimes the value alignment folks are, and sometimes I, th- I think gloss over this issue of what are common values and are there any common values? Uh, so the value alignment, you know, solving it sort of assumes, okay, well, we, when we get the right values in, we're all done. What worries me a little bit in that context is, well, these common values are, are possibly not as common as we think they are. And, and so, so, but that's, that's the issue of how to deal with the problem. But the problem itself, and, and as, a, as a research domain, is, is very valid. And, and as I said early on with a little Sokoban example, it, it is a, an absolutely surprising aspect of, of the AI systems we're training, how, how they can be, achieve incredible performance but doing it in a way, you know, not knowing certain things that are obvious to us in, in, in some very non-human ways. So, so that's clearly uh, coming out in a lot of AI systems. And that's related to the value alignment problem. So, the, so this, this fact that we can achieve a super high level of performance, even when we train it carefully with, with human-generated training data and things like that, it still can find ways of doing things that are very non-human. And potentially very non-value aligned. So that makes it uh, even more important to, to study the, the, the topic. Do you think that the Sokoban example, that you can translate the pushing the boxes into corners as a expression of the alignment problem? Like imagining if pushing boxes into corners was morally abhorrent to humans? Yes, I, I think the, the yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. It, it. it is an example of what I sort of think of as, as you know, it's a domain and it's, it's a toy domain, of course, but there's certain obvious truths to us that, that are obvious in this case, you know, pushing a box in a corner is, is not a moral issue or but it, it's definitely something that that is obvious to us, and if you if you replace it with some some moral truth to us that is obvious to us, it, it is an illustration of the problem. It's an illustration of of when we think of training a system, and even if you think of let's say tra- you know bringing up a child or, or a human learner, you have a model of what that system will learn, what that human learns, and how the human will make decisions. And and the Sokoban example is an, is sort of a warning of with an with an AI system, it it will learn the performance that you the test, so it will pass the final test. But it may do so in in ways that you would never have expected it, it to to achieve it. So you would you would actually say like with the the corner example, it's 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 a little strange almost to me to to realize that oh you you can solve this very hard Sokoban problem without ever knowing about what a corner is, and and it literally doesn't. 
So it's, it's these surprises of getting to a, a urine level performance and missing and not quite understanding how that's done. I, I think another, you know, for me, a very good example is, is machine translation systems. So machine translation systems are, are you know, we, we see incredible performance. They basically map strings of, of in one language to a string and then you know, English to Chinese or English to French. It, it, having discovered a very complex transformation function in, in the deep net, trained on, on hundreds of thousands of sentences, but it's doing it without actually understanding. So it can translate an, an English text into a French text or a Chinese text at a reasonable level without having any understanding of what the text is about. And, and again, it's, it's to me, is that non-human aspect. Now, now, researchers might push back and say, well, the network has to understand something about the text deep in the network. I actually think that we'll find out that the network understands next to nothing about the text. It just has found a very clever transformation that we initially, when we started working on natural language translation, didn't think uh, would exist, but I guess it exists. And you can find it with a gradient descent deep network. So again, it's an example of, of showing a human level cognitive ability achieved in a way that is, that is very different from the way we think of intelligence. And that makes, you know, when we start using these systems, we, we are not aware, so people in general are not aware that, that your machine translation app has no idea what you're talking about. So, so do you think that there's an important distinction here to be made between achieving an objective and having knowledge of that particular domain? Yes, yes. I think that's a very good point. Yeah. By boiling things down, in, in my sense, by boiling task in AI down too much to an objective, in machine learning, the objective is do well on the test set. By boiling things down too much to a single measurable objective, we are losing something and, and we're losing underlying knowledge, you know, the, the way in which the system actually achieves it. And we're losing an understanding. And, and we're losing uh, the attention to that aspects of the system. And so that's why you know, interpretability of deep nets is, has become sort of a, so it's definitely a hot area, but, but it's trying to get back to some of that issue. It's like, what's actually being learned here? What's actually in these systems? But if you focus just on the objective and you get your papers published, you, you're actually not encouraged to think about that. Right. And there's the sense then that also that human beings have many, many, many different objectives and values that are all simultaneously existing. And so when you optimize for one in a kind of unconstricted way, it will naturally exploit the freedom in the other areas of things that you care about in order to maximize achieving that particular objective. And that's when you begin to, you know, create lots of problems for everything else that you that you value and, and care about. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. That's that's the single objective problem. So so and, and actually you 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 lay out sort of a potential path is, is saying, okay, I, I should not focus on single objectives task. I actually have to focus on multiple objectives. And I would say go one step further. Once you start achieving objectives or, or sets of objectives and your system performs well, you actually should understand, to some extent at least, how these objectives, what knowledge is underlying, what is the system doing, and, and what knowledge is it, is it extracting or relying on to achieve those objectives. So that's a useful pass. So given this risk of existential 
threat from AI and also the AI alignment problem as its own kind of issue, which in worst of all possible cases leads to existential risk. What is your perspective on futures that you fear or futures that have quite negative outcomes from AI in particular in the light of the risk of existential threat and then also the reality of the alignment problem? Yeah, I, I think the, so. The risk is that we continue on a, on a path of of sort of designing system with with a single objective in mind and and just measuring uh, the achievement there and ignore the alignment problem. And, you know, there, there's you know, people are starting to to pay attention to it, but paying attention to it and actually yes, really solving it is two different things. So there is a risk that these systems just become so good and so useful and, and commercially so valuable that the alignment problem gets sort of pushed to the background as, as being not so relevant and that we, you know, that we don't have to worry about it. And, and you know, so, so I think that's sort of the, the risks that, that, that AI is, is struggling with. And, and it's a little amplified by the, the commercial interest. I think, you know, the clear example there is the whole, you know, social network world and, and how that has spread, you know, fake news and, and, and got people into, you know, different groups of people to think totally different things and to, to believe totally different facts. And that you know, I see a I see a, a little warning sign there for AI. It's, it's, it's those are those networks are driven by tremendous commercial interests. It's actually hard for society to say you know there's something wrong about these things. <laughs> we shouldn't maybe or we should not do it this way. And so that's a risk that you know, it works too well to actually push back and say we have to take a step back and and figure out how to do this well. Right. So you have these commercial interests which are aligned with with profit incentives and attention becomes the variable which is trying to be captured for profit maximization. And so attention becomes this kind of single objective that these large tech companies are training their massive neural nets and algorithms to try and capture the most of from people. So you mentioned like issues with information. And so, you know, people are more and more becoming aware of the fact that if you have these algorithms that are just trying to capture as much attention as possible, then things like fake news or, you know, extremist news and advertising is quite attention capturing. So I'm curious if you could explain more of your perspective on how the problem of social media algorithms attempting to capture and also commodifying human attention as a kind of single objective that commercial entities are interested in capturing, how that represents the alignment problem. Yeah, so I, I think it's it's a very, very nice analogy. So so first I would say, you know, to some extent the algorithms that that try to maximize the time spent online basically are, are getting most attention. Those are not particularly sophisticated. Those are actually you know, very basic sort of, you know, you can, you can you know, sample uh, little TikTok videos. How, how often are they watched by some subgroup? And, and if they're watched a lot, you spread, you know, you give them out more. If they're not watched, uh, you, you start giving them out less. So the algorithms are actually not particularly sophisticated, but they do represent an example of what can go wrong with this single objective optimization. And what I find intriguing about it 
it's not that easy to fix, I think. It's, it's, it's not like, because, you know, the companies, of course, you know, their business model is user engagement, is advertising. You know, would you have to tell the, the companies not to make as much money as they could? It, it, it's not so easy to, if there was an easy solution, that would have happened already. So I think we're actually, you know, in the middle of sort of trying to figure out is there a balance between making profits from a particular objective and societal interests? And how can we align those ideas? And it's a value alignment problem between society and companies that profit from them. Now, I, I should stress in the whole social networking, and you know, they're incredible, and, and that's, I think, what makes the problem so int intriguing. There's incredible positive aspects to social networks and people exchanging, you know, f stories and and interacting. So again, that I think is what makes it complex. It's not that, that it's only negative. No, there's, there's tremendous positive sides to having you know, interesting social networks and, and exchanges between people. People in principle could learn more from each other. Of course, what we've seen is actually, strangely, people seem to listen less to each other. <laughs> so maybe it's too easy to find people that think the same way as you do, and the algorithms encourage that. So in many ways, the, the, the problems with the social networks and, and the single objective optimization are a good example of a value alignment challenge. And it shows that the solution, finding a solution to that is probably, it will require way more than just technology. And it will require you know, society and governance, companies to come together and find a way to manage these challenges. And it will not not be an AI researcher in an office that finds a better algorithm. So so it is a good illustration of, of what can go wrong. To me, it's, it's a good illustration of what can go wrong. And in part because people didn't expect this, actually. They saw the positive sides of these networks and, and bringing people closer together. No one actually had thought of fake news, I think. <laughs> so so it's, it's something that emerged, and, and that shows how technology can surprise you. And that's, of course, you know, in terms of AI, one of the things we have to watch out for, the unexpected, the things that we did not think would happen. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like the, the algorithms that are being used are, are simpler than I might have thought. But I guess maybe that, that seems like it counts for the difficulty of the problem if really simple algorithms are creating complete chaos for most of you know, humanity. Yeah. No, no, exactly. I, I think that that's an excellent point. So, yeah, you don't have to create very complicated. You know, you might think, oh, this is some deep net doing reinforcement learning. Might be closer to statistics that gets labeled AI. Yeah, yeah, it gets labeled AI. Yeah. So, so it's actually, you know, just plain old uh, simple algorithms that, that do some statistical sampling and then amplify it. But you're right that that uh, maybe the, sim the simplicity of the algorithm makes it so hard to say don't do that. <laughs> like you know, it's like if if you run a social network, you would say let's not do that. Let's spread the posts that don't get many likes. And that's <laughs> that's almost against the, your interest. So so it it's but it is an, an example of you know the power is is partly also of course the, the scale in which these things happen. The I think it, you know, with the social network, I think what I find interesting is why, why it took it a while before people became aware of this phenomena is because everybody had their personalized content and, and we didn't actually, there was no shared news channel or something like this. There's one news channel, everybody watches it and, and you see what's on it. I have no idea what's in my news feed of the person who's sitting next to me. So, so there was also certain things like, oh, I didn't know you got all your news articles with a certain slant. 
So not knowing what, what other people would see and having a huge level of personalization was another factor in, in letting this phenomena go unnoticed for quite a while. But luckily, people are now at least aware of the problem. It's, they haven't solved it yet. So I think two questions come up for me. One thing that I like that Yuval Noah Harari has said is he's highlighted the importance of knowledge and awareness and understanding in the 21st century, because you said this isn't going to be solved by someone in big tech creating an algorithm that perfectly captures the collective value of all of, you know, the United States or planet Earth and how it is that content be ethically distributed to everyone. It also, it requires some governance, as you said, and but then also some degree of self-awareness about, you know, how the technology works and how your information is being biased and constrained and for what reasons. The first question is, I'm curious how you see the need for collective education on technology and AI issues in the 21st century so that we're able to navigate it as people become increasingly displaced from their jobs and um, it begins to really take over. Let's just start there. So, yeah, so I think that's a very important uh, challenge that we're facing. And I think education of everyone is a key issue there. So, so AI should not be, or these technologies should not be presented as sort of magic boxes. I, I think it's, it's much better for people to, to get some understanding of these technologies. And, and I think that's possible in, in our educational system. You know, it has to you know, start fairly early, that people get some idea of how AI technologies work. And, and most importantly, perhaps, people need to start understanding better what, what we can do and what we cannot do and, and what, what AI technologies are about. And, a good example to me is, is something uh, like the, the, the Data Privacy Initiative in Europe, which I think is a very, uh, very good initiative. But for example, there's a, there's a detail in it is, is, is where you have a right. I think you, I'm not sure whether it's part of the law, but there's definitely discussions and, and how you have a right to get an explanation of a decision by an AI system. So sort of the right to an, to an explanation. And what, what I find interesting about it, that that, that sounds like, oh, that's, that's a very good thing to, to get. Until you've, you've worked with AI systems and machine learning systems, and you realize, you know, you can make up pseudo explanations pretty easily. And you can actually ask your systems to explain it without using the word gender or, or race. And they will come up with good explanation. So... The idea that a machine learning algorithm has sort of, you know, a crisp explanation that, that is the true explanation of the decision is actually far from trivial and, and can actually easily be circumvented. So it's an example to me of policymakers coming up with regulations that sound like they're making progress, but they're missing something about, you know, what AI system can and cannot do. You know, that's another reason why I think people need much better education and, and, and insights into, into AI technologies and at least hear from, from different perspectives about what's possible and what's not possible. So given the, the risk of AI and algorithms increasingly playing a role in society, but also playing this part of single objective optimization and then us as humanity having to collectively face the negative outcomes and negative externalities from widely spread algorithms that are single objective maximizing 
in light of this, uh, what are futures that, that, you know, that you most fear in the short term from 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, where we've, we've really failed at, at AI alignment and, and working on these, these ethics issues? Yeah. So, so I'm not quite sure. So, so, so one thing that, that I do fear is an increased uh, income inequality. And it's, it's, it's as simple as that, that the companies that, that are the best at AI, that have the most data, will get such an advantage over, over other organizations that the benefits will be highly concentrated on, on a small group of people. And, and that that I think is is a real because AI technology in some sense amplifies um, your uh, ability to do things. So it's like in finance, if you have a good you know AI trading uh, program that can mine you know text and 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 hundreds or thousand different indicators, you could build a very powerful uh, financial trading firm. And of course, trading firms are are, are, are working very hard on that. But it concentrates the, the the you know a lot of the benefits in the hands of a small group of people. That I actually think is sort of, in my mind, sort of the, the biggest short-term risk of, of AI technology. It, it's, it's a risk any technology has, but I think AI sort of amplifies it. So that has to be managed, and and that that comes back to what I mentioned fairly early on: the the benefits of AI. It has to be ensured that, that it will benefit everyone, maybe not all to the same extent, but at least everyone should should benefit to some extent. And that's not automatically going to happen. So that's a, that's a risk, I see, for development of AI. And then, you know, more dramatic risks, I, I think, you know, short-term cybersecurity issues, you know, smart attacks on, on, our, on our infrastructure, AI programs could be quite, quite dangerous, deep fakes, so sophisticated deep fakes. There are some specific risks that, that we have to worry about because they're going to be accelerated with AI technology. And then there's, of course, the military autonomous weapon risk. There's an enormous pressure to, you know, since it's a competitive world of, of developing systems that, that use as much uh, automation as possible. So, so it's, not, it's not so easy to tell uh, a military or a country not to develop autonomous uh, weapon systems. And so I'm really hoping that people start to realize, and this is again an educational issue partly of, of people, you know, the voters basically, that, yeah, there is a real risk there, just like nuclear weapons was a real risk. And, and we had to get together to make agreements about at least the management of, of nuclear weapons. So we, we have to have agreements, global agreements about autonomous weapons and, and, and smart weapons and what can be developed or, or what, what should at least be controlled somehow that will benefit all the players. And, and that's you know, one of the short-term risks I see. So if we imagine in the short term that there's just all of these algorithms proliferating that are single objective maximizing that are aligned with whatever, you know, corporation that is using them, there is uh, a lack of international agreement on autonomous weapon systems. Income inequality is far higher due to the concentration of power in particular individuals who control vast amounts of AI. So if you have the wealth to accumulate AI, you begin to accumulate most of the intelligence on Earth. And you can use that to create robots or use robotics so that you're no longer dependent on human labor. 
So this increase in income and power inequality and lack of international governance and regulation, is, is that as bad as the, as the world gets in, in the short term? Or is, is there anything else that, that makes it even worse? No, I, I think that's, that's about as bad, as bad as it gets. And I assume there would be a, a very strong reaction in almost every country for, of the regular person, I guess, of the voter or the, or the person in the street. There would be a strong reaction to that kind of scenario. So is that reaction, though, possible to be effective in any way if lethal autonomous weapons have, have pr- proliferated? Well, so lethal autonomous weapons, yeah, so there, there are two, yeah, so there, there, there are two different uh, aspects. It's sort of what, one aspect is what sort of happens within a country and, 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 you know, do the people accept, you know, extreme levels of inequality, income inequality and power distributions. And I think people will push back and, and there will be a backlash against that. Lead autonomous weapons, when they start proliferating, I think, so, so I, I just have some hope that countries will realize that that is in nobody's interest. So, so that, that you know, countries are able to, to, to manage risks that, that, that are unacceptable to, to everyone, I think. So I'm sort of hopeful that, that in the area of lead autonomous weapons, that, that we will see a movement by, by countries to say that, hey, this, this is not going to be good for any one of us. Now, it's, it's, I'm being a little optimistic here, but with nuclear weapons, we, we did see, you know, it, it, it's always a struggle and it remains a struggle to, to today. But so far, we actually, countries have sort of managed these risks reasonably well. It's not easy, but it can be done. And I think it's partly done because everybody realizes nobody will be better off if we don't manage these risks. So with lethal autonomous weapons, I think there has to be first a better understanding that these are real risks. And, and if you let that get out of hand, like let small groups develop their own autonomous weapons, for example, that that could be very risky to the global system. I'm hoping that countries will realize this and, and start developing a strategy to, to manage it. But it's a real risk. Yeah. So should things like this come to pass, or at least some of them, in the medium to long term, what are what are futures that you fear in the time range of, of fifty to hundred years or even longer? Yeah, so 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 the lethal autonomous uh, weapon risk would be you know, that that could just be as bad as nuclear weapons and being used at some point. So that sort of could wipe out humanity. So there, so there is, I, th- I think that's that sort of <laughs> worst case scenario is we would go down in flames. Um, there are some other scenarios where, where I think, and this is more about the, the inequality issue, where a relatively small group of people you know, grabs most of the resources and, and is enabled to do so by AI technology, and, and, and the rest can, can live reasonable lives, but, but, but are limited uh, by their resources. So that's, I think, a somewhat dark scenario that, that I could see happen if we don't if we don't pay attention to it 
right now. And that could play out in, in 20, 30 years. It's a little hard to, you know, again, one thing that's, that's a little difficult to, to predict with is, is, is how fast the technology will go, grow, and you combine it with advances in, in, in biology and medicine. You know, I'm always a little optimistic we could be living in just a, a very different and, and very positive world, too, if we, that's what I'm hoping that we'll, we'll, we'll choose. So, so I, I'm staying away a little bit from too dark a scenario. So talk a little bit about AI alignment in in particular. I'm curious, it seems like you've been thinking about this since at least 2008, perhaps, I mean, even earlier, you can let us know. How have your views shifted and evolved? I mean, it's been, what is that, like about 13 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very good question. So, yeah, in 2008, we had the Eric Horvitz and I co-chair the uh, AAAI uh, presidential panel on, on the risks of AI. It's very interesting because at, at that time, this was before the, the real deep learning revolution, people saw some concerns, but they, they, the general consensus of, of, and this was a group of about 30 or 40 AI researchers and, and a very, very good group of people, there was a, a sort of a general consensus that it was too, almost too early to worry about value alignment and, and, and the risks of AI. And I think it was true that AI was still a very academic discipline. And it seemed, you know, talking about, oh, what, what if this AI system starts to work and, and people start using it, you know, what's going to happen, seemed premature and, and was premature at the time. But it was good for, I think, for people to get together and, and at least discuss the issue of what could happen. Now, that really dramatically changed over the last you know, 10 years, particularly the last five years. And, and in part through people like Stuart Russell, Max Techmark, who basically brought to the forefront you know, these concerns of, of AI systems, combined with the fact that we see these systems starting to work. So now we see these incredible investments and, and companies really going after AI capabilities. And suddenly these questions that were quite academic early on are now very real. And we have to deal with them and we have to think about them. And you do, I mean, the good thing is if I look at, for example, NSF, the funding in the United States, but, but around the world, actually also in Europe and in China, People are starting to fund AI safety, AI ethics, work on value alignment. You see it in conferences, and, and people start looking at those questions. So I, I think that's the positive side. So I'm actually quite encouraged with, with, with how much uh, was achieved in a fairly short time. You know, FLI played a, a crucial role in that too in bringing awareness to the AI safety issues. And now I think among most AI researchers, maybe not all, but most AI researchers, these are viewed as legitimate topics for study and legitimate challenges that we have to address. So, so sometimes I, I feel good about that aspect. Of course, the questions remain urgent and the challenges are real, but at least I think the research community has, has found the attention and, and in Washington, I, I was actually quite pleased if I look at the, the significant investments being planned for AI and the development of AI R&D in the United States. And, you know, safety, fairness, uh, all, a whole range of issues that touches on how AI will affect society are, are getting serious attention. So they are being funded. And that happened last five years, I would say. So that's a very positive development in this context. 
So given all this perspective on the evolution of the alignment problem and the situation in which we find ourselves today, what, what are your, your plans or intentions as the uh, president of AAAI or AAA, triple, triple, AAAI? Yeah, so, so as part of AAAI, we, we've definitely stepped up our involvement, which was, was Washington, the policymaking process, to try to inform policymakers better about the issues. And then we've had actually, we did a roadmap for AI research in the United States. That was a sort of planning 20 years ahead of, of, of topics. And, and we proposed there to, I think what, was a key component was to to build a national AI infrastructure, as we we called it. There's an infrastructure to do AI research and development that would be shared among institutions and be accessible to to almost every organization. And and the reason is that that you know we don't want AI research and development to be concentrated just in, in a few big private companies. We actually would like to make it accessible to to many more stakeholders and, and many more groups in society. And to do that, you, you need an AI infrastructure where you have capabilities to store, curate large data sets, large facilities to cloud computing, to, to give access to other groups in society to build AI tools that are good for them and that are useful for them. So as AAAI, we, we're, we're pushing for this sort of generally making AI R&D generally available and to boost the, the level of funding, keeping in mind these issues of fairness, value alignment as valid research topics that should be part of anybody's research proposal or people who have, do research proposals should have a component where they consider whether their work is relevant in that context and, and if it is, you know, what contributions they can make. So that's what, what our society is doing. And, and this is, of course, an, uh, a good time to be doing this because, you know, Washington is actually paying attention because not just the U.S., every country is, is developing AI R&D initiatives. So we, we, our goal is to provide input and to, to steer it in, in a positive way. Yeah, and that's, that's actually a, a good process to be part of. So you mentioned um, alignment considerations being explicitly at least covered in the publication of papers. Is that right? So at least I think people are, yes, yeah, so there are papers purely on the alignment problem, but people are, if I look at, at sort of like a reinforcement learning world, people are, are aware that alignment is, value alignment is an issue. And, you know, it, to me, it's also closely related to interpretability and, and understanding, which we talked about a little bit before, is, you know, not just getting to a certain objective, quantitative objective, single objective, not just optimizing for that, actually understanding the, the bounds of your system, safety bounds, for example, in, in the work on, on cyber physical systems and, you know, self-driving cars, as of course a key issue is, you know, how do I guarantee that whatever policy is learned, how do I guarantee that that policy is safe? So it's getting more attention now, you know, the pure value alignment problem, like when it gets to ethics, I think there is, as we, we talked about, you know, values are, are, you know, there's a whole issue of how you define values and what are there basic core values, and these are partly ethical questions. There, I think, is still room for growth, but I also see that, you know, for example, Cornell, our, our ethics people in the philosophy departments are thinking about ethics. 
are starting to to look at this problem again and looking at the way AI is 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 going in in, in these directions. So, partly I'm encouraged by an increase of collaborations between different disciplines that traditionally have not collaborated much. But the, the, the fact that, that ethics is relevant to a computer science student, I think, you know, five years ago, nobody even thought of mentioning that. And now I think the, you know, most departments realize, yes, we actually should tell uh, our students about ethical issues and we should educate them about algorithmic bias. And value alignment is, 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 a, is a more challenging thing because you have to know a little bit more about AI, but most AI courses will definitely cover that now. So so I, I think there's, there's great progress and, and I'm hoping that we just keep continuing to make those, those connections and make it clear that when we train students to be the next generation of AI engineers, that they're very aware and they should be very aware of these, these ethical components. And that's, I think, is, is there might even be somewhat unique in engineering. I, I don't think engineering normally would touch on ethics too much, but, but I think AI is forcing us to do so. So you see understanding of and a sense of taking seriously the AI alignment problem at, for example, AAAI as, as increasing? Yes, yes, yes. And, and definitely it's, it's increasing and, and people are, you know, partly there's always, it takes time for, for people to become familiar with the terminology, but they are, you know, people are much more familiar with with the, the questions, and you know, we've even had job candidates talk about AI alignment, and so that then the department has to learn about what that means. So it, it's it's partly an educational mission. It's it's you actually have to understand how, you know, reinforcement learning optimize and decision making, and you have to understand a little bit how things work. But I think we're we're, we're starting to educate people, and and definitely. People are, are, are much more aware of, of these problems. So that's good. Yeah. Does global catastrophic or existential risk from AI fit into AAAI? I, I would say that at this point, yeah, I, I don't think we, we get research. Actually, it's hard to say because we, <laughs> I think we have like 10,000 submissions. And I think there's room at AAAI for, for those kind of, kind of papers. I, I just haven't actually... Personally, I haven't actually seen them, but that actually, as president of AAA, I would definitely encourage us to branch out and, and, and if somebody has an interesting paper, this could be a position paper, there are some other types of papers now that, that we have that sort of say, okay, let's have a serious paper on existential risks. It's because there, there is room for it. It just hasn't, so far, has not happened much, I think, but but I think it fits into our into our mission, So so I would encourage that. So you mentioned that uh, one of the things that AAAI was focusing on was collaborating with government and policy making decisions, offering comments on documents and suggestions or proposals. Do you have any particular policy recommendations for existing AI systems or the existing AI ecosystem that you might want to share? Yeah, I think my sense there is sort of more like a meta-level comment is, is I think what we want is, is people designing systems with a significant AI component and that, that 
the big tech companies, for example. Our main input there is we want people to pay serious attention to various things like bias, uh, fairness, and, and these kind of criteria, AI safety. So it's, it's not, I wouldn't have a particular recommendation for any particular system, but you know, with the AI, AAAI submissions now, we ask for sort of a, an impact statement and that somebody who does research, and that's what we're asking from the researchers, is when you do research that touches on something like value alignment or AI safety, you, you should actually think about you know societal component and possible impact on the work. So we're definitely asking people to do that. In companies, I would say it's more we, we ask company, we encourage company to have those discussions and, and, and make their engineers aware of these issues. And there's, you know, there's one organization now, the, the Global Partnership uh, on AI, that, that's actually also now very actively trying to, to do this on an international scale. So it's a, it's a process, and it's partly, I think you mentioned earlier, an educational process where, where people have to learn about these problems to start incorporating them in their daily work. I'm curious about what you think of AI governance and the relationship needed between industry and government. And one facet of this is, for example, we've had Andrew Critch on the podcast, and he makes quite an interesting point that some number of subproblems in the overall alignment problem will be naturally solved via industry incentives, whereas some of them won't be. The ones that, are, that will naturally be solved by industry incentives are those which align with whatever industry incentives are, so profit maximization. I'm curious what you, how, your view on the need for AI governance and how it is that we might cover these areas of the alignment problem that won't naturally be solved by industry? That's, that's a good question. I, I do. I think yeah, not all these problems will be solved by industry. So, so their, their objectives are, in, in some sense, a little too narrow to, to just solve them, you know, a broad range of objects. So I really think it has to occur in, in a discussion and in a dialogue between, you know, policymakers, government, and public and private organizations. And it may require, whether it requires regulation or at least, you know, form of self-regulation that may be necessary. Necessary to even level the playing field. You know, very early on, I, I, or earlier we, we talked about you know the, the social networks spreading you know fake news. You might actually need regulations to tell people you know not to do certain things because it would be profitable for them to do it. And and so then you have to have regulations to to limit that. On the other hand, I do think a lot of a lot of things will be through self-regulation. So self-driving cars, you know, is, is a very you know, circumscribed area. There is a clear interest of all the of all the participants and all the companies working on self-driving cars to make them very safe. So, for some kind of AI systems, the objectives are sort of a sort of self-reinforcement that you need safety; otherwise, uh, people will not accept them. Other areas, I'm thinking, for example, finance industry. That's that's a big issue. You know, that it's actually. The competitive advantage is often in, in, in proprietary systems. It's actually hard to know what these systems do. That that I haven't don't have a good solution for that. Uh, one of my worries is that you know financial companies develop technologies that they will not uh, want to share because that would be detrimental to the business, but actually expose risks that that we don't even know of. So that's you know that society actually has to come to grips with some. You know, are, are risks being created uh, by AI systems that we don't know of? So it has to be a dialogue and interaction between public and private organizations. Yeah. 
So in the current AI ecosystem, how do you view and think about narratives around a international race towards more and more powerful AI systems, particularly between the United States and China? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, that's actually, I think that's a bit of an unfortunate situation right now. So, so in some sense, the competition between China, the US, and also Europe is good in terms of, you know, from an AI perspective, in terms of investments in AI R&D, which actually does address also some some of the AI safety issues and, and issues of alignment. So in, in some sense, that, that that's a good benefit of, of, of these extra investments. The competition aspect is less positive. And, you know, we, we as AI scientists, we actually interact as AI scientists in, in, in China. And, and we actually, you know, we, we enjoy those interactions and, and a lot of good work comes out of that. You know, when things become, you know, proprietary, people have data sets that other people don't have and other organizations don't have and, and countries, some countries do have, others don't. I think the, the competition is not as positive. And, and again, my hope is that by bringing out the potentially positive aspects of AI uh, much stronger in, in terms of how it can to me, for example, AI can transform the healthcare system. It can can make it much more efficient, much more widely available with, with remote healthcare delivery and and things like that, and, and better diagnosis uh, systems. So there's an enormous upside for developing AI for healthcare, and that where that's done, I've actually you know interacted with people in China that work on healthcare for AI. So there's a tremendous, you know, whether it gets developed in China or whether it gets developed here, that, that actually is, is not, doesn't matter. It, it would benefit both countries. So I, I, I really hope that we can keep these channels open instead of a totally separate developments in, in these two countries. But there is a bit of a risk because this, this situation has become so competitive. But but again, I'm, I'm hoping people see it, it will be improved healthcare in both countries. It's probably the right way to do it. And we shouldn't be too isolationist in this regard. How do you feel that this sense of these countries competing towards more and more powerful AI systems, how do you feel that that affects the chances of successful value alignment? Yeah, so that, so that could be an issue if, if, the, if the countries, you know, really start, you know, not sharing their technology and, and not sharing potential advances. It, it, it is harder, I think, to, to keep value alignment issues and AI safety issues under control. And that, you know, I think we should be open about, about the risk of, of countries going at it by themselves. Because the more people look at systems, the, the more researchers look at, at different AI systems from different angles, the better. And I guess a you know, very odd example is, but, but I guess I always thought that it, it would have been nice if AlphaZero was available to the AI research community, you know, to, to probe the brain of AlphaZero. But it's not. So, so there are already systems in industry that would actually benefit from a study by much broader group of researchers. And there, there's a risk there. Do you think that there's also a risk with sharing? It would seem that you would accelerate AGI timelines by sharing the most state-of-the-art systems with anyone, right? And then you can't guarantee that those people will use it in value-aligned ways. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That's a flip side. That's that's. Uh, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, it's good you brought that up. Yeah, there, there is a flip side in, in sort of sharing 
you know, even the latest, you know, deep learning code or something like that, that other people, that malicious actors could use it. In general, I, I think an openness is better in terms of keeping an eye on what gets developed. So in, in general, I think openness you know, allows us to, allows different researchers to develop common standards and, and common safety guards. So I'm, I, I see that risk of sharing, but I, I do think overall, you know, an international research community can set standards. We see that that in, in synthetic biology and, and other areas where where openness in general leads to to better managing of risks. But you're right; it might also still there's there's an effect that it accelerates progress. But you know, the countries are big enough to even if if China and the U.S. would completely separate their AI developments, uh, both countries would do very well in their. Uh, development of technology. So so I'm curious, do you think that AI is a zero-sum game? And I'm curious how you view an understanding of AI alignment and existential risk at the highest levels of Chinese and U.S. government affecting the extent to which there is international cooperation for the beneficial development of AI, right? So there's this sense of racing because we need to capture the resources and power but there's the trade-off with the risks of alignment and, and existential risk. So, yeah, I, I firmly believe that, that you know, there, it's not a zero-sum game. Uh, absolutely not. So, so you know, I, I give the example of the healthcare system, but both China and the U.S. have interest in, in better accessible healthcare, more available healthcare, lower-cost healthcare. So, the, actually, the, the objectives are very similar there. And AI can make an incredible difference for both for both countries. Similarly, in education, you know, you can improve education by, by having AI-assisted education, adult education, continuous learning education. So there are incredible opportunities and both countries would, would benefit. So that, that I definitely, AI is not a zero-sum game. I think the competition, so, so that I hope countries realize that, you know, even, so, so when, when China declared that they want to be a leading AI na nation by, by 2030, I, I think there's room for several leading nations. So, so I, I don't think you know, if one nation, you know, is, is more better at AI, that will be that will be the best outcome. The, the better outcome is if AI gets developed and used by many nations and shared. So I, I hope that, that politicians and governments see that shared interest. Now, as part of that shared interest, they may actually realize that the existential risks of bad actors, and that can be small groups of people, it could be a, a company or an organization, a bad actor using AI for negative goals, that that's uh, something that uh, a global risk that again should be managed by countries collaborating. So I'm hoping that there are actually some, some understanding of the global benefits and it doesn't, not a zero-sum game, we all can gain and the risk is, is a global risk and we, we, we should actually have a dialogue about, you know, so some of these risks. The one component that is that is a tricky one, I think, is always the military component. But even there, as as I mentioned before, the autonomous the risk of autonomous lethal weapons is again something that that affects every nation. So I, I can see countries realizing it's better to collaborate and cooperate in these in these areas than to just take it as a pure competition. 
so you said it's not a zero-sum game and that we can all benefit. How, how would you view the perspective that the, the relative benefits for me personally for racing are still higher, even if it's not a zero-sum game, therefore I'm going to race anyway? Yes, I mean, you know, there, there may be some of that, except that, I mean, I can, I almost look at it a little different. I, I can see a race where we still share technology. So so the race, this is one of these strange, you know, where it's almost like we're competing with each other, but we, we're trying to get better altogether. You can have a race, and, and, and that can still be beneficial for progress, as long as you don't want to, want to, Keep it everything to yourself, and I think what's what's interesting, and that's the, the story of, of scientific discovery and, and 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 the way scientists operates. In some sense, scientists compete with each other because we all want to you know, discover the next big thing in science. So there's some competition. There's also a sense that we have to share because if I don't share, I I don't get the latest from what my colleague is doing. So there's a mutual understanding that, yes, we should share because it actually helps us, it helps me even individually. So that's how I see. So how do you convince people to share the thing which is like the final invention? Do you know what I mean? If it's, you're like, if I need to share because then I won't get the other thing that my colleague will make, but I've just made the last invention that means I will never have to look to my colleague again for another invention. Yeah, so that's a good one. But but yeah, so in science, we don't think there's sort of an end point. So, so there's, there will always be something uh, something novel now. So. Yeah, of course, there's always something novel, but you've made the thing that will more quickly discover every other new novel thing than any other agent on the planet. How do you get them? How do you get someone to share that? So, well, I think what partly the story still is, even if one person, if one country gets so dominant, there's, there's still a question: is, is that actually beneficial for even the country? I mean, there are many different capabilities we have. There, there are still nuclear weapons and things like that. So you might get the best AI, and somebody might say, "Okay, I think it's time to to terminate you." Uh, so, so there, there's a lot of different forces. So I think it's it's a sufficiently complex interaction game that that I'm hoping that. I'm thinking that, that to think of it as a single dimension issue is probably not quite the way the world will work. So, um, and, and I hope politicians are aware of that. <laughs> I think they are. Okay, so in the, in the home stretch here, we've brought up lethal autonomous weapons a few times. What is your position on the, the international and national governance of lethal autonomous weapons? Do you think that a red line should be drawn at the fact that life or death decisions should not be delegated to machine systems? That's a reasonable goal. I, I do think there are practical issues that to, to specify exactly in what sense how these systems should work. So, you know, decisions that have to be made very quickly, you know, how are you going to make those if, if there's no time for a human to be in the loop? So I like it as an objective that there, there should always be a human in the loop. Um, but the actual implementation of system, I think, needs further work. And, and it might even just come down to actual systems and somebody looking at those systems and say, okay, this, this has sufficient safeguards and, and this system doesn't. Because, you know, there's this issue of, you know, how, how quickly do you have to react and can this be done? Uh, 
And of course, that's that's partly you see that with defense systems that, you know, a defensive system may have to make a very quick decision, which could endanger the life of, I don't know, an incoming pilot, for example. So there are some of the issues, but but in principle, I like it as a, as a principle that, that lead autonomous systems should not be developed. And there, there should always be this human decision-making uh, as part of it, but that it probably has to be figured out for each individual system. So would you be in favor of, for example, international cooperation and l- limiting the, I guess, the, the, you know, having treaties and, and, and governance around autonomous weapons? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and I think it's, it's, you know, people are sort of you know, sometimes skeptical or about whether that's possible. But I actually think it's one of the things that, that, that is probably possible because yeah, when when militaries start to develop those systems, because that's that's the the, the real tricky part. When these, these systems are being developed or start being sold, you know, they can be in the hands of any group. So I think countries actually have uh, an interest in, in treaties and, and agreements on regulating or limiting the, any kind of development of such systems. So I'm a little hopeful that that people will see this would be in nobody's interest to. To have countries competing on developing the most deadly lethal autonomous weapon, that, that would actually be a bad idea. And I'm, I'm hopeful that people actually realize that it's partly, again, an educational thing. So people should be more aware of it and will ask their governments, directly ask their governments to, to get agreements. Do you see the governance of lethal autonomous weapons as being a, a deeply important issue around the international regulation and governance of AI, a kind of like first key issue in AI as we begin to approach AGI and superintelligence. So does our ability to regulate and come up with beneficial standards and regulation for autonomous weapons, is that really important for long-term beneficial outcomes from things like AGI and superintelligence? Yeah, I think it would be a good a good exercise in some sense of seeing what kind of agreements uh, you can put in place. So it's it's a useful lethal autonomous weapon. I think is a useful starting place because it's I think it's fairly clear. I also think you know as there there are some complications. It's, it's not you know you can say oh never do this. What about if you have to decide in in a fraction of a second what to do? So so there are things that that, that have to be worked out. But in principle, I think countries can agree that it, it's it needs uh, you know collaboration between countries. And then that same kind of discussion and the same kind of channels, because these these things take time to form the, the right channels and the right groups of people to to discuss these issues could then be put towards other risks that AI may pose. So, so I think it's a good, good starting point. All right. A final question here, and this one is just a, a bit more fun. At Beneficial AGI 2019, I think you're on a panel that was about, do we want machines to be conscious? On that panel, you mentioned that you thought that AI consciousness was both inevitable and adaptive. I'm, I'm, I'm curious if you think about the science and philosophy of consciousness and if you have a particular view that you subscribe to. No, it's it's a fun topic, and and actually, when when I thought about you know when I thought about consciousness more and and will it emerge, you know, there's an area of of AI that actually you know because I've been in the field a long time, and AI is called uh, the area generally is called knowledge representation and reasoning, and it's about how knowledge is represented in an AI system and how an AI system can reason with it, and one. Big sub area there was the, the notion of self reflection, the notion in the multi agent system 
So, so self-reflection is not only you know certain things, you also know about what you know, and you know about what you don't know. And similarly, in, in a multi-agent systems, you have to know not only what you know, but you have to have some ideas of what others may know. And you have some, you have some ideas of what other agents don't know. And that is to facilitate interactions with other agents. So this whole notion of, of reflection on, on your own knowledge and other agents' knowledge uh, is, is uh, in my mind, is, is somewhat connected to consciousness and, and be of, of, your, of yourself and your environment, of course. So that's what that led to my comment that if you build sufficiently complex systems that behave intelligently, they will have to develop those capabilities. They have to know about what they know, what they don't know, and, and what others know and others don't know. And knowing about knowing what others might know about you, it actually goes arbitrary levels of interactions. So I think that that's it's going to be a necessary part of developing intelligent systems. And that's why my sense is that some, lo some notion of consciousness will emerge in such systems because it's, it's part of this reflection mechanism. So I, I think, and, and then you know, what, what I think is exciting about it is, is you know, there's in, in consciousness research, there's also a lot of research now on what is the neurological basis for consciousness. Is there some neurological basis in the brain that points at consciousness? Well, now we have work that, that uh, we see how deep learning, uh, deep reinforcement learning interacts with neuroscience. And we, we're looking for analogies of deep reinforcement learning approaches in AI and what insights it gives in, in actual uh, brains and actual uh, biological neurological systems. So perhaps that when we see things like reflection and consciousness emerge in AI systems, we will get new insights in what happens potentially in the brain. So this is, it's a very sort of interesting potential there. My sense of it is that it may be possible to disentangle constructing a self-model, like a model of both like what I am and also what it is that I know and that I don't know, and then also my world model, and that these things seem to be correlated with consciousness, with the phenomenal experience of being, like the experience of being alive. But it seems to me like they would be able to, to, to come apart just because it seems conceivable to me that I could be a sentient being with conscious awareness that doesn't have a self-model or a world model. I could imagine just like awareness of a wall that's the color green. The no sense of no duality there between self and object. So, you know, it's interesting the way, you know, it's a bit different the way philosophers come at the problem and, and computer scientists. There's the computational aspect, of course, you know, the modeling that's happening. But it seems like the consciousness part can become disentangled from the modeling, perhaps. And so I, I'm curious if you have any perspective or opinion on that and how we could ever know if uh, AI was, was conscious, given that they may come apart. No, you, you raise an interesting possibility that, that maybe they can come apart. And then the question is, can we investigate that? Can we study that that question in itself? Yeah, so, so my I was, I was more coming at it from the sense of that when the system gets complex enough and it starts having these reflections, it, it, it will be hard not to have it be conscious. But, but you're right, it, it, it probably could still be, although, although I, I, I would be a little surprised. But yeah, so my point of part is that, you know, the, the deep learning or reinforcement approach or whatever in a deep learning framework we, we will use to get these reflective capabilities 
I'm sort of hoping it might give us new insights into how to look at it from the brain perspective and a neural perspective. So because these things might carry over, they're, they're, they're you know, and you know, is consciousness a computational phenomena? That that you know, my guess is it is, of course, but but you know, that still needs to be demonstrated. Yeah, I, I would also be surprised if sophisticated self and world modeling didn't most of the time or all the time carry along conscious awareness with it. But even prior to that, you know, as we have domain specific systems, it's a little bit sci-fi to think about, but you know, there's the risk of proliferating machine suffering if we don't understand consciousness and we're running all of these kinds of machine learning algorithms that, you know, they don't have sophisticated self models or world models, but the phenomenal experience of suffering still exists, then that could, you know, we, we had factory farming of animals. And then maybe later in the century, we have the running of painful deep learning algorithms no that that's 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 indeed a possibility it sort of argues we actually have to we have to dig deeper in into the questions of consciousness and and, and so far i think you know most ai researchers have not studied it i'm just starting to see Starting to see some some possibility of studying it again, of starting to study it as AI researchers, and it just brought me back a little bit that this notion of reflection that topics go in and out of fashion, but that that used to be actually quite seriously studied, including with philosophers about what it means to know what you know, what does it mean to know that you, what you don't know, for example, <laughs> and then there's what you the things you don't know that you don't know, kind of thing. So so we actually we we thought about some of these issues, and now consciousness brings in that new dimension, and you're quite right, it could be quite separate, but it could also be related. So as we wrap up here, is there a, a final comment you'd like to make or anything that you feel like is left unsaid or just like a, a parting word for the audience about alignment and AI? So a yeah, comment to, to, to the audience is that the alignment question, value alignment, AI safety are super key, important topics for, for AI researchers, that there, there are many research challenges there that, that, that is far from solved. And in terms of the development of AI, that we that are tremendous positive opportunities if, if things get get done right and that we should not. So one, one concern I have as an AI researcher is, is, is that we get overwhelmed by the concerns and the risks and, and decide not to develop positive uh, capabilities for AI. So we should keep in mind that, that, that we can, can really benefit society if AI is done well, and, and that we should take that as our primary challenge and manage the risk while doing so. All right, Bart, thank you very much. Okay, thanks so much. It was fun. Thanks for joining us. If you found this podcast interesting or useful, consider sharing it on social media, with friends, and subscribing on your preferred podcasting platform. We'll be back again soon with another episode in the FLI podcast. <laughs>